The lesson from the New Testament is a familiar story. I am not reading from the Living Bible as is printed in the bulletin, but from today's English version. The lesson is found in the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 10, verse 17, following. As Jesus was starting again on his way, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to receive eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, do not cheat. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man said, ever since I was young, I have obeyed all these commandments. Jesus looked straight at him with love and said, you need only one thing. Go, sell all you have, give the money to the poor, and you will have riches in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the man heard this, gloom spread over his face, and he went away sad because he was very rich. Jesus looked round at his disciples and said to them, how hard it will be for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were shocked at these words, but Jesus went on to say, My children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is much harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. At this the disciples were completely amazed and asked one another, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked straight at them and answered, this is impossible for men, but not for God. Everything is possible for God. Then Peter spoke up. Look, we have left everything and followed you. Yes, said Jesus, and I tell you this, anyone who leaves home or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel will receive much more in this present age. He will receive a hundred times more houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and persecutions as well. And in the age to come, he will receive eternal life. But many who now are first will be last, and many who are last now will be first then. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. In watching the Olympics, I couldn't help but be thinking about uh, uh, right at the end of World War II. One of the professors that I had the privilege of studying under at the University of Edinburgh, Professor James S. Stewart, had taken a preaching responsibility in the city of London. And the Olympics were held that year for the first time in a long time in London. Gigantic stadium, it was completely packed. At that time, there were only 65 nations that were participating, but over 1,750 young people had participated by taking the 
Olympic torch lighted from Mount Olympus and running in relays all the way to the city of London. And then as the torch came into the city of London, it was handed to a young Cambridge competitor, and he raced around the stadium and went up to the great pedestal and lighted the Olympic torch, signifying the beginning of the Olympic Games. Now, the interesting thing about that particular young Cambridge athlete is that his name was John Mark. And if you think for a moment about John Mark, you cannot help but think, of, at least I can't, of the gospel according to Mark, the good news which he has brought. And of that huge number of Olympic runners who have brought forward the message that God has invaded human history and that he has brought to us salvation and eternal life in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, Mark was interested that we should know this, and so he recorded for us, and so did Luke, and so did Matthew, this encounter that I read to you a moment ago, a crucial encounter of a young person with Jesus Christ. Right now, millions and millions and millions of young people feel lonely for it's their first time away from home at school. Millions of little first graders have started toward their room and turned around with tears dripping from their eyes to go back to the waiting car of mother. And mama has had to brush aside the tears to see the little one going to school. We feel restless. Why? Because life, like the sun, is moving on. You know, the sun never sets. If you fly toward the sun in an airplane, it doesn't set. You can chase it. We may set, but the sun does not. It keeps on going. Now then, eternal life keeps on going, but it is not just duration, as Peter Marshall once pointed out, but donation, quality, gift of life. Here comes a young man running to Jesus, falling at his feet. We are told that he is rich by Mark. He comes to Jesus with a tremendous question, a question that inevitably all of us are faced with, eternal life. When Gertrude Stein lay dying, there is a Story. Gertrude Stein was the person, by the way, the writer who invented the term lost generation. And she spoke of her generation following World War I as the lost generation. Then we've had all kinds of different generation descriptions since then. But Gertrude Stein, when she was in a coma dying, they said that she roused for a moment. And she said, what's the answer? And there was no reply from her friends who were in the room. And then in a few minutes, she roused again. And she said, what's the question? Well, what's the question? This young man asked it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why did God create me? What is my purpose here? What gives meaning to my existence? To what future am I headed? 
To everything there is given a time and a season, Charles Massey read to us a moment ago. But God has set eternity in their hearts. There is that longing, wistful feeling in all of man that looks out yonder as far as he can look and wists for more. He may jazz it up for a time with all of his other idols, with sex, with drink, with drugs, with material possessions, with fame or popularity, but whenever he is alone, he remembers that life is moving on and he must move on too. And so the story has told us of God speaking in Scripture. God speaking to the Israelites, you have no certain home here. Strike your tent, move out, you're journeying on. And here comes Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, teaching and preaching, and now he is on his way to Jerusalem to die. And on his way to Jerusalem to die, he had blessed the little children and it said, except you become like one of these, you can't inherit the kingdom of God. And then comes this young man of the ruling class to Jesus and falls at his feet and says, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He didn't care what anyone else thought. He fell at the feet of Jesus, and he asked him that tremendous question. Jesus said to him, I wonder why you call me good. Why do you call me good? Jesus did not say, do not call me good. Jesus asked him a question. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He identifies himself, Jesus does, with God and he wonders if this young person has made that identification. Or he wonders whether he is simply posing an academic question and whether he has been disobedient to God. So Jesus tests him. Jesus tests him in a way that few people within the walls of this chapel or few people who are listening to my voice on the radio could pass today. He asks him this. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, do not cheat, honor your father and mother. And this young man said, teacher, I've kept all these since I was a youth. And then Mark records for us that Jesus looked straight at him, eyeball to eyeball, and Jesus' heart warmed to him, and he loved him. And because he loved him, he wanted him to see that he did not indeed keep all of the commandments. You see, Jesus omitted giving him the first table of the law. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And I think the reason that Jesus did this is that this young man's idol, his God, was money, was his wealth. Because he loved him, Jesus said to him, Go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, take up your cross and follow me, and you will have riches in heaven. Now it must be said to his everlasting credit that though he became silent and his face was filled with darkness and gloom, and he walked away from Jesus, he went away sad. He went away sad. 
It almost makes us think that the story is broken off here, that maybe some later time he recovered and came back. We don't know. Scripture does not tell us it stops here. But the challenge of Jesus is there. And the challenge of Jesus is not only given to this young man, but to everyone who names his name, to every follower of Christ. He says, look through your life, search out whatever God you have put in my place, and get rid of it, and come and follow me if you want eternal life. Millions of young people, not only in the United States, but in many parts of the world, are turning to Jesus. They have seen in the crass materialism that has been presented to them by much of the media and oftentimes by their parents an emptiness that debases them. Many of them have sought refuge in escapisms of every type, and now many of them are looking wistfully toward Jesus and flocking to him in a way that makes many of their elders to be embarrassed at the dedication which they show. He asked of Jesus the right question. Eternal life, but not life simply in length of time, but life in quality. He knew he did not have it. He knew that in his own heart something was missing. And you know we sense this when we lose our sense of values. We realize that something tremendously important is missing. You cut the commandments of God out of your life and you wake up one day and you find out that life is empty. Your value system is gone. And so when Jesus got personal with this and began to ask him about these commandments, he said yes to that and then Jesus really tested him by saying to him, Yet one thing you lack, one thing you need, one thing you want, go and get rid of your idol and come and follow me. He could not pass that test, but he turned and went away from him, filled with sorrow. Now, what is your idol? What is that to which you cling? At Montreat, in the summertime, they bring many great preachers. In the wintertime, we go on winter rates, so you get a cheaper preacher. <laughs> but in the summertime, the, they bring many great preachers here. And this summer, there was a tremendous preacher from Berkeley, California, the First Presbyterian Church, Earl Palmer. And he spoke to young people on the Book of Romans, a very heavy book. And yet they ate up what he had to say to them in the Anderson Auditorium was just jammed full of young people. He used a very effective illustration of exactly what I'm trying to get across here about idols in the heart. He told a parable, which was his own, and never made the New Testament. He, he told a parable of a root. It was of a mountain climber who was climbing up the sheer face of a, of a cliff, and he's climbing, 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 and he's a thousand feet up, and he gets just to the summit, and he reaches and he takes his pack and he puts it over the top and then he puts some of his other tools over the top and he's starting to press himself up and he slips and falls. But as he's fallen just a few feet, he grabs hold to a root that's growing out of the rocks that are there. And he holds on to that root. And then Earl Palmer said, now let's examine the position philosophically. 
you're holding on to the root. Maybe you've had courses in karate to strengthen your forearms. Maybe you've had courses in judo so that they're good and strong, but you know you can only last so long holding on to that root. And then your forearm muscles will give way and you'll fall thousand feet straight down. You try to reach up to the top and your fingernails dig into the granite, but you just can't get over the top. So then, there come people to assist you. What are you going to do? The first person to look over the top, said Earl Palmer, may be your junior high school algebra teacher that you gave a nervous breakdown. And she looks over the top at you and uh, you don't want to let go of the root and grab her hand <laughs> because she looks down to say, sorry, you lose. <laughs> so you are afraid to let go of the root. She goes away. You don't trust her. And then there's a circus, he said, nearby, and there's a tremendously wonderful person that you like very, very much in the circus, Little midget, about that high. He weighs 65 pounds. And he comes and looks over and says, I'll help you. Well, you don't want to let go of the root and grab him. What help would he be? You might fall on top of him, but that wouldn't be much help. That would be horrible. So you don't trust him because you do not think that he has the power really to lift you up. Now says Earl Palmer, this is his parable of modern youth. We have to trust someone. You can't just go on hanging there. One day, you're going to fall. Now, how will you get up? What about Jesus of Nazareth? He comes and reaches over the ledge with his nail-scarred hand. Are you willing to let go of your root in order to take hold of him? If you can, he can lift you up, but only if you let go of the root. You can't keep on holding to the root and hold on to him at the same time. Well, that story is good because it shows the plight of this young man here. He wanted to follow Jesus but he also wanted to keep his own security, which was in this case his idol, his money. Jesus would not have given this counsel perhaps to everyone because money would not have been the idol in everyone's case. There are many of us who are not rich in material possessions, who are terribly rich in sinful pride, who are terribly rich in racial pride, who are rich in other ways, and we will not let go of these things to take hold of Jesus. So Jesus looked at him, loved him, said, go and sell what you have, give it to the poor, come take up your cross and follow me. He wouldn't let go of your God, his God. Now what about this and its application to modern American church members? How many people do you suppose in the millions upon millions upon millions upon millions 
of names on church rolls, do you suppose there are a people who consciously, honestly, earnestly have given their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Really? Given their lives to the Lordship of Christ where he has entered into that private thing which they have kept secret from everybody else and he said this one thing you must let go of to follow me. Well, this in Jesus' dealing with this young man is essential to his coming after him. The young man knew that he did not possess eternal life. He knew where to get it, to get it from Jesus. But in counting this cost, it was so tremendous that he wondered if he should let go. What is it that makes this life so precious? This past week, I received two long-distance telephone calls. One wake me up, and a mother full of tears said to me that one of my dearest friends, who is only a few years older than I am, had died in the night with a heart attack. This time last week, he was in the Presbyterian Church. He was a tremendous Christian. And I go this afternoon, and I'll stand beside his grave, and I'll say some words that have to do with eternal life, a life which he consciously entered when he gave himself to the Lordship of Christ, and a life now which is completely given over to him. And his wife, because of that commitment, could say to me, I know that he is with the Lord, and although her voice was broken with pain and her eyes were filled with tears, she had that blessed comfort and strength to know about in her own life. Life was precious to him, and he used it for God's glory. Now, I got another telephone call. Long distance, many states away. This man wanted to commit suicide. He called me because life had become a wretched, unbearable mess for him. Why is it so precious a gift to one and such a wretched mess to another? Why? What quality of lordship does Christ exercise over a life? What quality of lordship does he exercise over it? He knew he could find that life in Jesus. And he asked him for it. Jesus told him what to do. Let go of everything. Let go of everything. Give it all, all to me. And you'll have eternal life. This is what he is saying to us. There's no other way to grow in the Christian faith. You don't get it all at one gulp. We do not all become mature, fruit-bearing Christians overnight. But we grow in our Christian faith day by day in a painful process of surrendering our life to him. That's why it's spoken of as a cross. He said that he took up his cross. And he said, if you will have eternal life, you must take up your cross and follow me. Not just that first step, but that following is where so many spiritual dropouts enter into the picture. The following of Jesus, walking after him in a painful day-by-day surrender of self that he might be Lord. 
This does not paint for us a picture of perfection. We see it in the apostles, Peter, James, and John. We see all of these people filled with their human frailties. One little girl asked me one day back in my office, she said, the Christian faith is an impossible ideal. She said, no one can live up to it. And I said, well, do you believe Peter was a Christian? She said, yes. And I said, well, this very human and failing apostle who followed Jesus, Jesus said, upon the confession which he has made and the type of faith which he has displayed, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so if you can identify with these apostles and their surrender to the lordship of Jesus, and it was a costly surrender, and we can identify with them, and millions of young people are identifying with them, and they are surrendering to, uh, to Jesus, then we can know that experience of his eternal lordship over us and of eternal life, not just when life ends here, but the quality of life now being affected and touched by him and what we reflect and demonstrate to those who are around about us. He turned and went away sorrowful. You know, Peter speaks up. I'm so glad that Peter was around because we wouldn't have half of the Gospels if he hadn't been. He was always asking questions. He said, look, Lord, we left everything and followed you. What did he leave? Well, he left his fishing nets and he left his boats and he followed Jesus. He left everything to follow him. A fisherman's boats and nets are as dear to him as a rich man's big house might be. So Peter said, look, we left everything to follow you. Yes, said Jesus, you have. And I tell you this much, that anyone, anyone, who leaves home or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or feels for me in the gospel's sake shall have a hundred times more in this present life. What does he mean by that? That fellowship of believers. That fellowship of believers, brothers and sisters in the Lord who feel for each other and who bear one another's burdens. That's the family of God. And that's what it's is shown to us in the New Testament for. But he says also there will be persecutions that will test us as well. And in the age to come, he says, eternal life. But he shows how the reversal of earth's standards are. Many who now are first will be last then. And many who are last now will be first then. Jesus. Jesus speaking to the needs of our hearts. On my birthday the other day, we had a very happy experience. Some friends were here. We went down to a little coffee house in Black Mountain. There were some people gathered singing some choruses. And I asked these friends of mine to tell how they came to know Jesus. One of them had a Master of Arts degree, has, holds a Master of Arts degree from Oxford University and a PhD from Edinburgh University. He told of how his brother had been converted to Jesus Christ and he had been touched by his brother's conversion. 
His brother had gone to India as a missionary and was there only a few years and died while quite still young uh, of a fever. And when he thought of his brother's devotion to Jesus and of his own empty life and heart, he wanted that same dedication to Jesus Christ too. And then there was another man who is a Harvard Ph.D. He went to Wesleyan University. He told us how he came to Christ. It's only when we understand that we are bankrupt and that our root that we're clinging to will not hold us that we will really come to Christ. He said that in his case, he was the first member of his family to attend college. He had an opportunity to go to Wesleyan University. The average board score for the SAT at Wesleyan University is about 1,300, 1,350. That's uh, average, pretty good average. Very selective, highly competitive in the class with Harvard and Yale and Princeton. He went there and they have a very strict honor code at Wesleyan University. He did not know Jesus Christ. He was bent on his academic pursuits. He did not care about Christ. And then because he had worked hard, very, very hard, and yet in one week when so much was on him, he could not turn in a term paper on time. He took a paper that had been turned in four years before, retyped it, and turned it in to his professor. It came back with an A on it, but with a note from the professor to drop by his office. When he came in, the professor took the term paper, and he went through his files, and he got another term paper. And he said, you know, this paper is so good that I filed away this paper. And then he held them both out together. He said, how do you explain this? He had signed the honor code pledge, I have neither given nor received any help. And he could only make the frank admission that he had lied. So he was suspended from school for six weeks. He went home. And in the small town of 5,000 where he lived, he was a reproach. He said that he attended a church where the minister did not preach from the Bible, no challenge for Christ or to follow him was ever given. But in his despair, he began to read the Gospels. And he sensed his own need. And once he had found his need, then he came to his Savior and was saved. He went back to Wesleyan. The honor code was so strictly enforced that students did not speak to those who had broken it for a period of time. And he was very lonely. He could find no other Christian fellowship, and the Lord was testing him, helping him to be able to see that he must rely upon him alone. And as he told us that the other night, and I thought about him and the rich young ruler and the laying down of all our idols and the yielding to Jesus Christ and the coming in of the young people here today and the fact that these months here at Montreat will just pass away so quickly. It seems like time creeps at times, but now it will speed up before you know it. The year will be gone, and then you will look back over the year, and there will be some things that you will be dreadfully ashamed of if you're not careful. 
or you can look back over it with deep and hearty satisfaction because you have stood for those things which are right in the sight of God and which are right in the sight of your fellow students and which uphold the things that you really want to be and stand for in life. And so that's the challenge of Jesus, which is to surrender your all to him, that he may take over your life and bring it to him. All the bitter shame and sorrow that a time should ever be when I let the Savior's pity plead in vain and proudly answered, all of self and none of thee. Yet he found me, I beheld him bleeding on the accursed tree. I heard him pray, forgive them, Father. And my wistful heart said faintly, some of self and some of thee. Day by day his tender mercy, healing, helping, full and free, sweet and strong and ah so patient, brought me lower while I whispered, less of self and more of thee, higher than the highest heaven, deeper than the deepest sea, Lord, thy love at last hath conquered. Grant me now my supplication, none of self and all of thee. You can only find your real identity in God. And when you surrender yourself to him, then you will reflect what he means for his creatures to show to others as you are reborn by the Holy Spirit and as you walk in newness of life for him. The challenge of Jesus is to, send, is to surrender the secret control center of our lives to him. And that's basic to any Christian discipleship. Let us stand in prayer. O oh God, our Heavenly Father, we thank thee for faith in Jesus Christ. We thank thee that he can touch life and bring to it a deeper and better meaning. And we pray that the wind of the Holy Spirit may sweep into the lives of many of our own students this year and that they may sense and know the joy of a dedication to Jesus that is reflected by an obedience to him and which brings to life a sweetness and a strength and a quality and a character which shall reflect to his honor and glory. Lord God, grant that someone as a result of these feeble words may today seek out in a secret place a time of dedication to thee and lay whatever it is at the center of their lives on the altar of Christ and yield to him. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and our guide, be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. Thank you.